It's the Brexit Breakdown Podcast from the UK in a changing Europe. Hello and welcome to another Brexit Breakdown Podcast. I'm James Miller, author, journalist, man on a mission to find out more about Brexit. And the guest on this episode is as well qualified as any to help in that mission. It's Nick Timothy, Theresa May's right-hand man through her time at the Home Office and into Downing Street, blamed by some for the disastrous 2017 election. And certainly he carried the can for that as he left number 10 shortly thereafter. And since he has been writing for The Telegraph, thinking and this spring publishing a book called... Remaking One Nation, the Future of Conservatism. He dialed into this conversation from Switzerland, which is relevant not necessarily because of his comments, but to explain the slight drop in the quality of the connection at one point. Um, mainly it's fine. And to explain the bird song as he was in a garden, his garden I assume, while we spoke and we were joined by Professor Anand Menon, Director of UK in a Changing Europe and new member of the Beardy Club. He's grown a lockdown beard. So he, Nick and I compared our beards before we started and then we began talking first about what's in Nick's new book. It's a fascinating chat. Enjoy. Can you can you give us the gist of your book in, in fairly briefly? The book really is um, an attempt to trace the problems that we have today back to the original ideas uh, behind the policies that got us here. Um, in particular, it's about some of the flaws in philosophical liberalism and the ways liberalism mutated into ultra forms, extreme forms across the left, right and centre of politics. And it's an attempt to explain how conservatism, that is real conservatism, um, can overcome ideology, become more communitarian. And by doing that, uh, to use the title, uh, we can remake the country. Uh, so borrowing the language of Disraeli and Baldwin, we can become one nation again. Yeah, it's a really interesting title. I mean, Anand, have you got a view on that title and the phrase one nation? How how I don't know how useful that is. I don't I don't want that to sound rude, but you know what I mean? It's a it's a, a tag that's been around a long time and a lot of people use it um possibly without entirely uh defining their terms. Obviously Nick's written a whole book to define his term, which is, is the best way to do it. Um does that one nation tag work for you, Anand? Well, I mean, everyone wants to wear the One Nation badge at the moment. And it seems to me that even, you know, at the height of the splits in the Parliamentary Conservative Party last year, both the Prime Minister and some of those he subsequently evicted from the party were claiming that they were One Nation Conservatives. So uh, it's obviously a label people want, but it's a label that is deeply contested. So it's useful to have a, a book length treatment talking about it. I was interested, Nick, that you said... I want to go beyond ideology and embrace communitarianism. Is there a, not a slight tension there? Isn't communitarianism <laughs> an ideology in its own right? No, I think I'm using it with a sort of small c uh, sense of the word. What I'm trying to say is that uh, I think the danger for the Conservative Party, when it's tempted by ideology, it tends to be tempted in a kind of uh, economic, liberal, libertarian 
direction. And I'm 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 arguing that uh, it needs to rebalance itself a little bit, become a little less ideological, and to remember the importance uh, of strong communities and the way we build up strong communities, uh, and also to recognise. Um, the value of active and good government. You know, I think sometimes the emphasis is on uh, individual freedom and the market, but actually life is really about uh, freedom and the market, yes, but also our kind of responsibilities to uh, uh, to others in our uh, local community, our national community. Uh, and also, you know, as the coronavirus crisis is showing, uh, we also need a, a strong state that is capable of uh, protecting us from a variety of different threats. Yeah, I mean, uh, that very much leads on to my, my next question, which is, you know, is it a good time? I mean, clearly, when you wrote the book and, you know, you, you had a publishing date and all the rest of it, nobody could have known uh, what sort of landscape that book would land in. Is it a good time for a book like this? Because, you know, uh, well, as you, as you say, I mean, the, the state is is doing a lot more today than it was even just a, a few weeks ago. Um, and people are thinking about, you know, well, big questions and, and how the world might look after this. Well, I mean, on one hand, it's terrible timing to uh, to launch a book because the world is quite understandably focused on uh, on mm. other things. Um, and uh, and there are obviously all sorts of practical problems uh, like getting the books to uh, to the booksellers and and then them distributing it to customers. But um, but I mean, it's also important to preface what we're saying with. Uh, you know the recognition that we're going through something that uh, is bringing a lot of anxiety and suffering to a lot of families, um, uh, whether that's about the immediate health effects of coronavirus or whether it's about the economic consequences of the lockdown. But um, but to me, I think um, there will be no going back. I think uh, to the way things were before this crisis. You know, we've got. Conservative ministers, really senior ministers, um, talking about a collective national effort and and how they need to use the power of government as the only way of keeping us safe from this uh, unusual threat. Uh, so there's a real language of solidarity. We're reminded of the army of volunteers who came forward to help the NHS or businesses trying to produce materials, uh, whether that's ventilators or protective equipment. Um, uh, the bailouts that business uh, is getting in one way or another from the taxpayer, we're being reminded of our interdependency. Uh, and I hope one of the good things that will come out of this is that, uh, um, you know, obviously consistent with what I tend to argue, uh, I hope that we will see more of an emphasis on community and how our individual lives improve as our shared lives improve, that we're stronger in protecting ourselves from danger when we act together uh, and that we'll see more of an openness towards an active and strong state and a much greater sense of partnership and and solidarity. Can, can I just chime in with a couple of questions what you just said I mean firstly doesn't the crisis also heighten the sort of underline the fact that our, inter our interdependence stretches beyond our borders uh, that actually with things like viruses, not only is it very, you know, you can't seal yourself off from the outside world, but actually in terms of, you know, reliance on workers, uh, need to collaborate with people abroad, that that interdependence goes beyond our own country. Of course it does. And I, d I don't know anybody uh, really who argues that we should just 
pull up the barricades. Um, you know, I think what this is showing is uh, whether it's through the collaboration we see between scientists internationally and the pursuit of treatments and a vaccine, the need for information sharing, the need to coordinate policies. Um, of course, there is uh, a need for um, a recon recognition of international interconnectedness, and there's a need too for um, uh, for international institutions that facilitate uh, the things I just listed. Uh, I, I suspect what you're getting at is that I'm a supporter of leaving the European Union. Um, uh, but I mean, I would say that international cooperation is absolutely vital. International institutions are enormously important to the health and well-being of the world, but it's really important that those institutions uh, um, maintain the legitimacy that uh, the democracy of national governments gives. And do you, do you foresee that there will be a, a maybe another battle for the soul of the Conservative Party coming out of this? I mean, you're clearly on one side of the debate, but you already hear rumbles. Uh, just thinking back pre-corona, I remember the rumbles around the uh, first bailout of Flybe. Do you think that that is a battle yet to come in the heart of the, the Parliamentary Conservative Party about the direction the party takes? Well, I mean, I think um, one of the things I say in the book is conservatism, in a way, is a kind of organised contradiction. It's, it's about managing the balance between, you know, uh, uh, freedom and community and markets and nations and, and so on. Um, but it's OK that... Uh, it, it has these tensions in it because these tensions really reflect the tensions that exist in wider society. So it's not really a surprise that there should be arguments about some of these things. Um, inevitably, I think, as the party moves in uh, a direction of more active government uh, and more support for community, which I think is what has started to happen, uh, certainly since Boris became prime minister, arguably since uh, Theresa did before him, uh, obviously, there is going to be um, an intellectual battle uh, and a kind of cultural battle within conservatism uh, because, you know, a lot of people um, who consider themselves to be economic or social liberals or both uh, might be a little uneasy with some of the things we're arguing. This crisis has sort of um, illustrated some elements of your book, perhaps in a way that you, well, obviously in a way that you could not have anticipated when you wrote it, that, yes. as you say, in terms of a, uh, perhaps a bigger state or a bigger role for the state, I mean, that, that's where we are now. Um, another big factor in the in the book is globalisation. Um, how do we see this, you know, globalization, the state of globalisation coming out of this? Is it going to be, because uh, as far as I can see, it could be accelerated, it could be slowed. I, I can't quite figure out what the impact's going to be. So I, I turn to you experts for guidance on that one well i mean i i think we, i think it's natural that political and media narratives tend to reduce things to being is it going to be faster or slower or is it going to go forwards or backwards or whatever it's obviously much more complex than that um and 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 i just i don't think we are going to of course we're not going to see the end of an interconnected world uh, with the technology we have with the nature of uh the modern economy uh, I mean, that's just impossible uh, to imagine. Uh, and, you know, as I've said, you know, while some of the lessons of coronavirus are about things like national resilience, others are about the need for international collaboration and, you know, in the race to find a vaccine or to coordinate policy and so on. But that doesn't mean that we will see the same model of globalisation, I think. Um, I mean, I, I 
I obviously wrote the book before um, before the pandemic, but uh, but I you know I say in the book that uh, the world as we knew it was already coming apart. It feels to me like um, the virus is hastening the changes that we were living through, uh, rather than necessarily changing their direction. The West will collectively grow more skeptical about China. Um, there'll be uh, domestic policies, I think, around the West to shift production from China either back to home markets or to uh, what you know what are perceived to be safer, low-cost countries like Vietnam and Malaysia, or in Europe, uh, Poland and Portugal. Um, supply chains, I think, uh, for business reasons as much as government policies, are likely to become uh, a little shorter and less dependent on one country. Um, and overall, a, a sort of strategic rivalry between. China and the West, not just China and America, but China and the West, uh, is likely to become much more overt. Um, I would add to that that, you know, if you listen to some of the rhetoric coming out of the United States about not being dependent on foreign suppliers for medical equipment in future, if you think about the fact that, you know, this, this originated in the food supply, that whether some countries start thinking, hang on a sec, we don't want to be importing so much, then actually you might find countries turning their back on the levels of trade we've seen recently. And I suppose a follow-up question from that to you, Nick, would be, does that weaken the prospectus for Brexit? I mean, if Brexit, I mean, Shankar Singham did a piece on Conservative Home a couple of weeks ago in which he was saying we have to end transition because we need to sign these trade deals very quickly. I just wonder whether in the current environment, trade is a priority for any country. Well, trade will be a really important priority for everyone because at the end of all of this, we're going to have to work out how we put the economy back together. Um, I, mean, I think the sort of models of uh, production networks are likely to change. Businesses are going to want to do that uh, for their own resilience, I think. But I think national governments will, uh, will say, well, we need to have uh, more resilience here at home and we need to have more capacity to act. So I think that then takes you into into directions where you know in the past we might have considered some of these policies to be a little protectionist you know japan has already said uh it will provide financial incentives for companies to take their production out of china and back to japan uh but it might also um point countries that we uh that we wouldn't normally associate with things like industrial strategy with policies like that so so as you say i think um uh, western governments that would normally uh, be a little uncomfortable with talk of things like industrial strategy might start to say, well, there are certain, um, uh, you know, uh, manufacturing outputs um, uh, that that are strategically important to our country, or food production that is strategically important to our country. We will make sure that those things are done in the home market. Um, I mean, you you brought it up, Anand. Obviously, you'd bring it up. Um, what's going on with this Brexit? There's got to be an extension, isn't there? Well, I mean, I think, I think in a about. sense, it depends which considerations dominate in your thinking. You can see the political rationale for extending, for not extending transition. I mean, it's a, it's a difficult calculation, but I suppose one way of looking at this is we have a prime minister who's USP uh, that he's cultivated, uh, whether accurately or not, we can leave to one side, of being the guy who does what he says on Brexit and delivers. And he has hammered home this point that we're not extending to the point of putting it in legislation, which can be overturned. But there's that reputation to think about. There's also cynically, I suppose, the idea that uh, if you leave the European Union or leave transition at the end of the year, 
insofar as there is economic disruption, it will be slightly hidden by the fact that the economic disruption going on post lockdown will be far greater. So it'll be sort of disguised under that. And then, of course, there's the argument that actually what we need to do coming out of this crisis is be in charge of our own regulations in order that we can react quickly to the circumstances we find ourselves in. Uh, I haven't really heard anyone specify which regulations those are as yet, but you know there is a political case I think for for delivering on what he's promised. The economics I think pushes in a different direction because at the very least uh, you're talking about adaptation for businesses on the back of a pretty profound adaptation that they're undergoing at the moment. And I suppose the question is whether it's it's fair on business to make them do two things in such a short space of time. All right, academic boy, you've raised lots of questions there, but I want an answer. If I give you a pound, I thought you have to bet on whether there'll be an extension or not. What would you put it on? Oh, God, uh, I genuinely do not know on that. I genuinely find myself thinking one thing and then the other and not being quite certain. Number of pounds I've offered you over the course of these. Podcasts. I know this. I mean, actually, a lot of the questions you've asked before have been easier, and I was just being difficult. Now I'm genuinely not being difficult. I'm genuinely split on this because I just do not know which way. I mean, Nick, you're here. This is you. This is your role. What do you think? So I am absolutely emphatically of the same opinion as Anand. Uh, <laughs> I'm resolute in my irresolution. Um, I like, I just. It is, incredi- it is incredibly difficult to know what the world is going to look like when the worst of uh, the virus passes. And, and I think one thing that is really clear is, is until there is um, a treatment that's available or preferably a vaccine mm. uh, that is possible to administer to uh, you know, the overwhelming majority of the country, then, then we're not going to be... This isn't going to end. We're going to have to work out a way of living with it. And that changes everything in terms of our economic society and our politics um and you know i know that there are definitely some people in government well actually you know the economic carnage of the lockdown makes a no deal brexit look like small fry um uh and and one thing i i would definitely say um especially to uh, anybody curious in brussels is when downing street says something i would actually take it at face value i certainly wouldn't rubbish uh what they mean as a posture um but it's you know it's it's very difficult to imagine exactly what the state of politics european politics british politics world politics is going to be like um at the end of this summer uh so it's therefore i think very difficult to answer uh the question of the likelihood of an of an extension so nick would you as a special advisor ever have tried to define policy on twitter in the way that david frost did the other day on transition well, I mean, certainly when I was a special advisor, I, I uh, came off social media and and when I was in Downing Street, we took a dim view of special advisors uh, giving views on uh, on Twitter, mainly because I have a slightly old fashioned view of the role of special advisors, uh, which is, you know, like Victorian children, they should be seen and not heard. Um, uh, you know, you are not the minister, you are not the policymaker, uh, you are not the decider. Um, however, David has um, uh, a slightly unusual role, doesn't he? Because he's uh, um, he's appointed on special advisor terms, but he's um, uh, he has a, a, a sort of formal uh, kind of executive function, uh, and so I think he probably does have a duty to um, uh, to articulate 
um, what he's doing and what he's trying to achieve for the government at different points. And he's done that in he's done that in uh, a speech. He's done it on Twitter, and and I think you know, so long as it's so long as it's clear and it's constructive and it's done according to the negotiating strategy, then uh, I don't think there's really any any harm in it. Um, that's just, it's, you guys. You guys are good. You're you're slick. I mean, you started talking about Downing Street, so let let's talk about Downing Street um, before we sort of finish up. Um, I'm trying to remember, Anand, can you remember the man we had on that uh, podcast live who was called Chris? And I meant to look it up before. Chris Wilkins. Yes. Uh, and I asked him the same question about his time in Number Ten because you know the the Theresa May Downing Street was not always a happy ship, as as or not as I understand. And yet, you know, you are actually in number 10. You know, you're in Downing Street in the heart of power. So, you know, do you look back on your time in, in Downing Street, Nick, as, uh, you know, a good time, uh, you know, a personal success? Or, or do you have less happy memories? Uh, no, I just have um, pretty bad memories. <laughs> uh, I mean, I had, a, I had five years in the Home Office, uh, which actually I do look back at uh, quite fondly. It felt like a... Uh, on the whole successful period um, and we got uh, some good things done um, uh, in number 10 um, you know it's, it's it's very difficult to call it anything other than a, a failure really I mean I was I was there for approximately the first year of Theresa's premiership and you know, in the year I was there um, and in the period after the 2017 election it's quite difficult to point to a sort of lasting legacy um apart from you know a couple of things that are rushed out towards the end in order to give a legacy which to be honest uh, i found a little dubious like the net zero um uh, ambition which was introduced with very little uh debate or scrutiny in parliament um i think maybe i think you know if i'm trying to be a bit generous i think maybe in in political terms perhaps we showed the way a little bit i mean the election was obviously a failure um, because we didn't win the majority we needed. But um, in the period before the election, uh, the political strategy uh, was much more about um, putting the Tory party firmly on the side of working class people, uh, much more kind of provincial agenda, uh, try to deliver Brexit, embrace the role of active government. Um, and uh, and that was pretty popular. I think one of the reasons the election went wrong was we pursued a, um, a, a different strategy. But that notwithstanding, we gained, you know, I think, a net two million plus votes in the election, mainly uh, um, in the Midlands and the north of England. And and I, you know, I think if I'm being generous, I would say that that sort of political strategy, um, apart from the poor execution in the election, might have helped point the way. Because if you sort of if you think about what that agenda is, it's not very different to what Boris has done with much more success uh, since he became PM last year. But come on. You were, you know, given the, the the career you were in, you you reached the pinnacle. Now I, I accept that it might not have been <laughs> particularly happy when you got to the pinnacle, but you must look back and think, well, uh, you know, well done me. <laughs> I got to the top of the tree. <laughs> no, no, I definitely don't ever think well done me. I sort of kick myself for um, some of the mistakes I made, but um, I just think I, there's no point in assuming a job title or working in a famous building. Or, uh, or, or thinking you've achieved just because you've reached a particular place, you've got to, um, you've got to strive to do things that that you know help 
improve people's lives and do things in a that change things in a lasting way. And you know, I felt you know, I felt like we did that in the Home Office. I felt like we didn't do that in Downing Street, and uh, and therefore I don't really feel the need to congratulate myself in any way uh, for that period. Far from uh, it. And looking at number ten today, um, you're talking about people, you know, having a certain job title, getting to a certain position, um, and then you know they have to do something with it. Um, you know, some might point at the prime minister and suggest uh, that could apply to him. Um, what do you make of of number ten's handling of the coronavirus crisis so far? Well, I mean, I think I mean I think it's an unfair criticism to uh, place at the door of Boris. I mean, he's uh, he's since becoming prime minister, he set out a pretty clear agenda for what he wants to do. It's uh, it's a pretty different agenda. Uh, it does involve more active government. It does involve uh, more investment spending. Mm-hmm. And it was focused in, I think, in one of the uh, most important places, which is the importance of uh, trying to rebalance the country and get more growth and prosperity and opportunity outside the south of England. So, um, so, so I would, um, I would find him not guilty of of that charge. Uh, I mean, what I would say about the virus is whatever um, the truth turns out to be about what the right course of action. Uh, might have been. Um, it is clear that the government has been led by um, scientific advice. Now, there is obviously no um, sort of consensus on the scientific advice, but the government is listening to its expert scientific advisors. And the truth of coronavirus is this is not going to be a sort of short-lived period where we can decide whether something was successful in a matter of weeks or a month or two, this is going to be something we are going to live with for quite a long time. We are um, probably going to see second and third uh, waves of the virus. And uh, it is, I think, far too early to uh, to, to decide exactly uh, what the right strategy was, which country did it best, and so on. We'll be able to come to those conclusions in uh, at some point in the future, but it's a bit... It's a bit early to be doing that, despite the temptations that some people have to try. But well, it is the job of politicians to make decisions, isn't it? And I'm, you know, I'm listening to the experts is all well and good. But if the experts disagree, ultimately, you know, that's why being a politician is more uncomfortable than being an expert. You have to decide. You've got to make those trade-offs, haven't you? Yeah, of course. And I'm not suggesting that um, politicians just sort of wave their hands and said, you decide. Uh, but you know what tends to happen is you get expert ad- advice and it points in a particular direction, and uh, and ministers will decide on that basis and on the basis of the things that I've seen and read and heard uh, through this crisis, it feels to me like um, the the politicians have been uh, broadly speaking going along with the with the advice that they've been given. What about the uh, the, the million dollar question on on prime ministers? Uh, you know, would it have been better if? Boris Johnson had become Prime Minister in 2016 and done Brexit, and then we had Theresa May in number 10 to deal with this crisis? <laughs> uh, well, um, well, I mean, everything I know about Theresa says she'd have followed the scientific adv- advice that was available, which is what I think Boris has done too. And I certainly don't uh, think I can imagine her shutting down the UK economy ahead of uh, that advice or ahead of... Um, other European countries. I mean, I think the, the interesting question about this, sort of the chronology of Theresa and Boris becoming prime ministers, is in a in a funny way. I, I, I not that I really believe in fate, but it sort of it almost feels a sort of 
a little bit like fate decided it because I sort of think if you, I mean, Theresa becoming prime minister and sort of trying and failing uh, to deliver Brexit almost created the space for Boris to then uh, make some compromises he did with the withdrawal agreement because of the sort of sense of desperation uh, in the Tory parliamentary party and in the country. Uh, but it also gave him the, the political space to sort of purge the parliamentary party of some of the diehard Remainers. And then that allowed him to go to the country with the United Front and win the mandate that he did, which will uh, um, hopefully lead to Britain leaving the EU in a sort of uh, clean and full sense. Uh, so I, I think I'd probably ask the question in a slightly different way. <laughs> um, you must have a view on that, Anand. I mean, I've long, long wrestled with the counterfactual as to what would have happened had a leading member of the Leave campaign been in charge from immediately after the referendum. Mm. As I say, it was always my sense that Theresa May had to prove herself and prove her Brexit credentials because she came from, well, just about the wrong side of that political divide. So that's an interesting question. I think Brexit would have progressed far differently had Gove or Johnson been in charge from the start. Uh, I think there were all sorts of, you know, I think obviously mistakes were made between 2016 and 2019, but there are a whole host of structural constraints that would have made it very difficult for any prime minister, I think, to run that process smoothly, given the division in the country, the division in Parliament. Um, you know, when we talk about politics, it, sometimes it seems a bit insignificant, given, um, you know, the horror of what is unfolding. And yet I will go there in the sense because... Um, sport is a thing, right? People like sport, and I think a bit of sport on the telly would, would cheer everybody up, um, and you've both got interest in it. Um, the Commonwealth Games, Nick, you're, you're still involved with the, the Commonwealth Games planning. Is it affected by this? Well, I mean, on the question of sport and during the lockdown, I mean, I think it's really important to note that um, if uh, the season was just annulled right now, then Annan's Leeds would not be promoted into the Premier League and my Aston Villa would stay very safely where we are in the Premier League. So I'm very interested in what comes out of that. Um, on the Commonwealth Games, I mean, uh, I mean like any uh, sort of organisation or, or commercial venture, large or smaller, as quite significant consequences to shutting down the economy for a period like this. Um, uh, and we were working on a really compressed timeline as it was because uh, Birmingham took over from Durban at pretty short notice. Um, so it, it obviously is going to be a bit of a challenge. Uh, and like everyone else, I mean, we're in a situation really where uh, we have to you know, respond to the way the, the, the virus and the official policy response uh, develops. Do you want to talk about Leeds, Anand, or should we just move on? Well, I mean, what, where, do, where to begin? I mean, clearly we're the best team in that division. <laughs> clearly, morally, there is an irrefutable case for us being promoted. And I think I'm sure that both the Premier League and the Football League will take that into account when they come to decide. <laughs> I'm sure. It would be the most Leeds thing to do, wouldn't it? Well, I have to say, I was joking to a friend the other day saying just in terms of my self-definition as a sort of Leeds fan who's used to, you know, the system being against us, this would just be the sort of icing on the cake. I could feel a, a, a sense of legitimate grievance for the rest of my life and not have to apologise about it. In the unlikely event, this podcast has not enlightened you sufficiently. Uh, right, let's, let's, let's finish up with uh, what we always finish up with, which is the feature, which is what would you recommend to understand 
Brexit. Where should we go first? Anand, do you want to give me your recommendation first? Because I'm sure you've got one for me. Yeah, I do. But it's not, I mean, in a sense, it's not that Brexit. It's just something that was on my shelves that I hadn't read and I wanted to read it. I read Inequality by Tony Atkinson Mm -hmm. in the first couple of weeks of lockdown. And it's just stupendously interesting on where inequality comes from and how you might deal with it. And I recommend it to anyone who's interested. Are you one of these people in lockdown who's actually got time to read books? Well, I'm one of the people in lockdown who is reading more than he did before lockdown. I'm not reading as much as I'd like, but yeah, I'm reading more. Lucky you. You obviously haven't got a homeschool to run. Uh, Nick, have you got a recommendation? I I read something quite recently where somebody said, oh, you've got to watch Sunderland Till I Die to really understand Brexit. And I thought, well, (laughs) you can can watch Sunderland Till I Die to understand the the full sort of lunacy that, that that we as football fans... Uh, are afflicted by um, but I sort of I actually really dislike this kind of uh, you've got to sort of read a particular book or sort of watch a particular TV series or film to uh, to understand Brexit so I think it sort of demonstrates the problem that that we've had in a way and so the, you know the people who voted for Brexit aren't kind of animals in a zoo that we have to try to understand or read about or study in some way uh, you know they're 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 human beings and they're fellow citizens and they were asked a question and they answered it. Now, I sort of think that you can uh, you can try to understand uh, the things in their lives that might have affected their view of Britain's place in the EU. But I don't think it's I don't think it's right to sort of pretend it was a sort of proxy vote for something else. Um, you know, it's definitely true that lots of people who voted to leave didn't go to university. Lots of people who voted to remain did. But, you know, it, you know that that's sometimes used as a as a proxy to say, oh, sort of people voted to leave because they were unhappy about something else, or they voted to leave because they didn't understand it, or something like that. So that kind of statistic tells me that we have a society and an economic model that's been letting people down, and perhaps the EU was part of that model uh, that was letting people down. So, sorry, I'm probably being overly pious, but I, I would say, um, like, I think we've got to try to get away from this mindset, trying to explain away the decision the country made is we, we need to accept it and learn from it and if we do that whether you're a leaver or a remainer uh, whatever happens with brexit uh, then we can all sort of uh, try to work together on making the country a better place trying to make the country a better place we could all do with a bit of that just now. Fascinating chap, Nick Timothy, wasn't he? I mean, uh, he's the first guest to offer an anti-recommendation, something you shouldn't watch to understand Brexit. Clearly he's a thoughtful and thought-provoking sort of chap. Um, if that conversation has provoked some thoughts in you uh, that you want to share, then get in touch. I am at Political Yeti on Twitter. And the UK and the Changing Europe are at UK and EU on Twitter. They're on Facebook and their website is ukandeu.ac.uk. This has been the Brexit Breakdown podcast from the UK and the Changing Europe. Supported by King's College London, funded and supported by the Economic and Social Research Council. Uh, the music has again been Requiem for a Fish by the Freak Fandango Orchestra. And I've been James Miller. Come back next time for another episode. Thank you. Goodbye.